So for the last two weeks, we've spent time with King Hezekiah. Week one, we talked about how he was brought up at a young age to be king. And how because of that, he had promise going for him. And because he had influence, he was a leader. We talked that week that because you are who you are, you have influence and that makes you a leader. In every field that you touch, whether it's in your workplace, your school, your home, you are a leader. You have influence. Because of that, we have to take that seriously. We can't abandon that moment of being a leader. When you are called upon, you have to take your role. We talked last week that because you're a leader, opposition's coming. Now, opposition can do one of two things. Number one, opposition can make you quit. I mean, you can stop. As a leader, you can say when opposition comes, I'm done. I don't want to go any further. I want to leave. I'm, I'm finished. Or you can take that moment and become excellent at your craft. You can become the kind of leader that people can count upon because you are a leader, because you have influence, and because that opposition's coming. And today, I want to talk about when you become a leader, you become a singer. And you may be going, huh, well, you lost me. I don't know. Let, let's just take a quick poll. Y'all can do this with me. And, and I, listen, we're just going to be open. And, I mean, we're family, right? So if you would say this morning, I feel like I can sing. Raise your hand. I, I feel like I can sing. Go ahead. Okay, lower your hands. How many in this room would say, I can't? And people have told me so. Okay. Number one, whoever's sitting if you in front of you needs to say they're sorry. Go ahead, take that time. I'm sorry I was wrong. Um, I'm not calling on you to become a, like, the next, you know, person on stage that sings. I just believe that when leaders are leaders, they always have a song on their lips. Um, I heard it said that most people go through a lifetime with a song that's never been sung in their heart. You have the opportunity today to change this world. That alone should be enough for you. You are given the opportunity today to change the world. Because of Jesus Christ, because of his strength and his power and his might, he allows you to be a world changer. That's your opportunity today, leader, to seize this moment, to enjoy it, to dig in deeply, or to simply be quiet. You know, I think that's why culture demands so much from the church. They've yet to see the singers appear when a song needs to be sung. They're waiting for people to show up in their workplaces, in their homes. They're waiting for people to show up at their schools just to simply say, a leader has arrived, and this leader knows Jesus. That's your opportunity today. You know, Sundays are awesome for me because I feel in this moment, I get this opportunity to spend with you where I get to encourage you to go get to work, to, to do something amazing that no one else is doing. In your field, people will go tomorrow and simply just do life. You get to go and be life. You get to show them this most excellent way. You have the opportunity to change the room tomorrow or not. Story goes that a group of middle schoolers decided to take a trip to uh, the George Bush Presidential Museum. They had walked through the, the moments where George Bush had 
had shared about what happened during 9-11 and they walked past pieces of the wreckage and, and they saw the decisions that had to be made. I don't know if you all have ever been to this museum. Then they walked into the replica of the Oval Office. Have you all been here? And they stood and they went, wow. And the door opened and in walked the former president of the United States. So I just want you to think for a minute. They were in the replica at this point. They, they saw what it looked like, what it had felt like to be the president. But at that point in time, it's just them. But all of a sudden, the president enters the room. I would like to think that it changed the mood, wouldn't you? I mean, it went from one moment to just being a part of, I don't know, a side note of history to being amongst it. That's your job. You get to go change the room. You get to walk in with the one in us that made the planets align and, and move and the water to be there and for the sun to rise and the moon to rise and the stars to shine. That God is in you. So when you enter a room leader, you get to take him with you. He will change the room, believe me. That's what he wants to do. You know, I was in student ministry for a long time. I loved it. I love being around students. Um, I will say, though, that every year we went to camp, and every year we would walk into where we were going to stay, and we would put our stuff up. And by the end of that week, that room that we had entered at the first of the week began to smell like a combination of body odor and axe spray. It changed the room. I mean, it... It was thick. If you've never gone to youth camp and experienced the change of the room like that, you haven't lived. It comes back with you. I mean, if I'd come back and if April hadn't gone with me and she smelled my clothes, she'd begin to wonder what I fell into. It changes you. God changes you. He doesn't just linger amongst you. He infects you deeply with his spirit. So when you show up in a room, O oh leader, you should change the room. That's the gift of God for you. The thing about God is the gift of, from God is that when you enter the room, you should point him and those people to God. That's the gift of God. Because, see, leadership is not leadership without a, someone to point towards. And if you show up in the room and you point at yourself, I can assure you, you will fail. We've been there, haven't we? Had opportunities to lead and we failed. And if you haven't, remember last week, it's coming. You're going to fail at it. That's why we need something better to point towards. That's why we need something greater for our lives. That's why we need something greater for our families than our workplaces and our schools. Because we're not enough. We can't ever be enough. We need something greater in us. Hezekiah is at a pivotal point in his life. Because see, in 2 Kings chapter 20, starting at verse 1, it says, In those days Hezekiah became terminally ill. Now, I, I want to stop here and just address the obvious. Hezekiah is going to die. And in this moment, Hezekiah has some different choices to make, doesn't he? In fact, it says that the prophet Isaiah, the son of uh, Amos, came and said to him, this is what the Lord says. 
Put your affairs in order, for you are about to die. You will not recover. You know, in Hezekiah's life, this is a pivotal moment. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you've been retrospective of the things you had wished that you had done. Maybe it's when you've left a previous job or a a move from another house, or perhaps it's been because you've been given the same diagnosis that Hezekiah has been given. That you become retrospective in your understanding, in your thought process, to where you begin to go, I wonder if I could have done something differently there. I wish I would have done something different here. As a minister, I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a hospital room or at a hospice care with someone, and they've said these same things. I wish I would have. I wish I would have done And it's never the things you think. I've never heard anybody say to me, I wish I would have started another company. I wish I would have bought more cars. I wish I would have had more money in my bank account. I've never heard those words. But I can tell you the things I have heard. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have gone to church more. I've heard those words a lot. Those two statements I hear more than any other thing when we get to this point of life like Hezekiah is in. And in this moment, the one that he hoped would show up on his behalf, Isaiah comes with really, really bad news. I want to stop there in our our text in 2 Kings. And if you'll join me in Isaiah, go to Isaiah 38 with me. Because I want to pick up what Isaiah sees. You know, I think it's really neat when we start to put the Bible in chronological order and we start to see what's happening really between a prophet and a king during this time of overlap, where they show up in Scripture. And and we get this moment from both sides. Isaiah 38, Isaiah 38, we pick up there in verse 1, it says, In those days Hezekiah became terminally ill. Prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came and said to him, This is what the Lord says. For your affairs in order, for you're about to die and you will not recover. Sound familiar? They both see it the same way, don't they? Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, verse 2 says, and prayed to the Lord. He said, please, Lord, remember how I have walked before you faithfully and wholeheartedly and have done what pleases you. Then it says something that we don't get a lot of times from men in Scripture. What's it say? Hezekiah wept. This is that undone moment, isn't it? This is that moment of knowing that the end is coming and there's uncertainty in it. We get from the other passages that Hezekiah begins to cry out to God. In verse 4 of this passage, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, who is now, according to 2 Kings, out in the foyer, leaving the palace. God speaks to Isaiah and he says, Go tell Hezekiah that this is what the Lord, your, your God, your ancestor David says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Look, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. (laughs) I I just got to tell you on this moment, what would you feel if you knew that someone came to you and said, I know you're terminally ill, but I'm going to give you five more years. What do you do then? You live like you are dying. Y'all remember that Tim McGraw song? where he starts to talk about the man that found out he was terminally ill and he he begins to do things like started to ride Broncos. I don't know why anybody would do that. 
Don't do that. L- listen, don't live like you're dead. Um, he's like, I jumped out of airplanes. That's things that only crazy people and our student pastor would do. Amen. Yeah, that's cool. Um, like, I also don't believe in testing the Lord your God. That's why I don't jump out of airplanes. Um, I don't get onto airplanes that I think aren't going to make it. So if, if you get on a Southwest flight and they hand you a parachute, get off. I'm like, listen, you, you flew me up here, land it. Um, but, I mean, this is what happens when you begin to get stirred by God. You begin to live differently. And in this moment, Hezekiah is given time. But see, what we don't get in 2 Kings that we do get in Isaiah is what happens next. What happens next is Hezekiah becomes a singer. It may say a poem in your Bible. This poem is lyrically, it's written without musical instrument. That's why it's a poem instead of a psalm. I mean, it could easily be be put into the book of Psalms. But it's just not. Different lineage, different time. But I just got to tell you, in these next few moments, we're going to get some truths that we need as leaders from Hezekiah's life that we need to take today home with us. It's three simple things. I'm going to give them to you right now so that we can spend the time in the text together. You ready for them? They're going to be up on the screen. A singing leader does this, sings despite human frailty. A singing leader sings despite human frailty. We're going to get to why here in a second. Singing leader sings despite human frailty. A singing leader sings because their sins are forgiven. A singing leader sings because their sins are forgiven. The last, a singing leader sings because being thankful isn't optional. A singing leader sings because sing, uh, sings because being thankful isn't optional. Those three things I hope that you will take with you today, that you'll chew on. But the main point of today is a leader becomes a singer. You want to know what to take home with you? A leader becomes a what? Oh, man. Y'all can't even talk today. Y'all have had too much you know, spring break in you. A leader becomes a what? A sing. Y'all are so close to singing just then. Y'all almost got into it. I, I'm with you. Now, if one of y'all just belted out like Broadway South Singer like that, I'd have asked you to leave. But um, that's what happens. A leader becomes a singer. A singer because life is good. In the midst of a bad world, life with Christ is good. It's awesome. It's more than ordinary. It's extraordinary. It changes you. It changes the room that you're in because of the Jesus in you. That's what happens when you get around God. There's not steps to greatness. I feel like there's this crazy thought out there that to be a Christian, you have to have more steps. Like it requires that as a Christian, you keep like walking through these steps so that at the end of it, you're closer to God than someone else. Can I just tell you something? There is no saving grace in the steps. You are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Which means this, if you want closeness with God, go back to the basics. That's how you gain closeness with God. It's not because you become a supernova Christian. Supernova Christians, I believe, have gotten really consumed with being as Christian as they can without Jesus. If I can do enough, if I can be enough, then Jesus will love me. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus loved you in spite of you. It's not based upon how good you can be. 
It's based upon how great he is. So listen to me, Christian. When I say that you're a leader that should change the room, it's not because of you. It just means that you have feet. You take Jesus with you. He changes the room. He changes the story. He opens opportunities. And if you're missing opportunities to share your faith, it's because you're not taking him with you. Because there are always people looking for Jesus. Constantly. They're at your home. They're at your workplace. They're in your school. People need Jesus. They need some feet to take Jesus to them. And that's why God gave them to you. Take your feet and show them Jesus. That's our calling. It's what wakes us up in the morning. It's what drives us. As leaders, you have influence. And what wakes you up in the morning will drive your leadership. If you wake up in the morning only to turn on the news and see what's next, you have found your God. But if you wake up in the morning and you search for Jesus, you'll find him. Scripture promises that. It, it just says, seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened unto you, right? I'm telling you, God is desiring to be found in this culture. He is desiring to be known in our generation. He's just waiting for people to show up. Are you ready? Because listen, Hezekiah's about to give us the truth of life. You ready? Verse 9, a poem by Hezekiah. I love that. King of Judah, after he had been sick and had been recovered from his illness, he said, in my prime of my life, I must go to the gates of Shalom, which means I'm going to die. I am deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will never see the Lord, the Lord of the land of the living. I will, uh, I will not look on humanity any longer with the inhabitants of what is passing away. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me. Like a shepherd's tent, I have rolled up my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. You make an end of me from my day until night. I thought until the morning he will break my bones like a lion. He will make an end of me day and night. A, a chirp like a swallow or a crane, a moan of a dove. And my eyes grow weak looking upward. Lord, I am oppressed. Support me. In this moment, Hezekiah gives us this. That leaders sing despite human frailty, which means this. When you raised your hand and you said, I can't sing, that's a lie. That's a lie. You can. You may not like what comes out. Your mate may not like what comes out. The person in the pew in front of you that had to repent may not like it. But you can all sing. You can all bring something to the table when it comes to God. Because you can bring you. That's the best you can bring, Right? Because it's not based upon our works, right? That's the evidence of faith. But God's not impressed by how great we are. God is impressed by how much we depend upon him and define his greatness in our lives. And so when we get to this moment, Hezekiah is just saying what we all know. One day, we are all going to die. There's a time clock and it's been ticking, hasn't it? I mean, we, just, we don't know when that's going to happen. I mean, certainly we know from history, it tells us that it doesn't just come to people that have lived long lives. Sometimes it comes to youth. We're not given a timetable. God doesn't tell us, hey, at this age, you're going to pass away. We just know that everyone will die. Unless Jesus returns, this is what's going to happen. 
You know, there's this man that we grew up around. He, he was a running kind of guy. I mean, every morning he ran. He taught us cross country at our school. He was an athlete. I mean, he's just one of those coaches that we had growing up that he was in the gym before we got there, and he was already sweaty from working out. He was just a healthy guy. He ate fruits and vegetables. He was like a vegan before vegan was cool. Um, and, and, I mean, lived that life. He died running one day. And it shocked everyone because we don't think about that, do we? We're like, man, if they run, they're going to live forever. That's what runners do. So it's not based upon just how healthy you can be even, right? I mean, the most unhealthy people in the world live long lives. So God, what is it? And Hezekiah says, listen, it's, it's human nature. This is what happens. Welcome to life. You know, I've preached several funerals where I talk about there's always two dates on a tombstone. The date you're born and the date you, you die. But there's always something between them, right? This dash. The dash is what you and I get to be a part of. That's all you got to be responsible for in this world is your dash. It's the moment you take with life. I believe there's people in this world that are not doing what they're called to do. They've been afraid. Maybe they didn't do it when they were young enough, and so now the excuse is, well, I would have done it now, but now I'm too old. Whatever it is, that dash. I, I believe there's people, maybe even in this congregation, that can cure a disease but aren't pursuing it because they feel like that's passed them by. The dash. This moment on a tombstone that is supposed to resemble in some way what you've done in your life. You know, I've sat here as well, even from this stage, with eulogies of what people's lives have meant. I can just tell you, Dell and I have talked about it before. It, a eulogy never does it, does it? I mean, you can sit up here and say, so-and-so uh, did this and that and this and that. And people go, yeah, they did. Yep, uh-huh. But are you defined by your resume? Listen, Mother Teresa never had a job. Did she change our world? I think she did. I mean, Gandhi was never CEO of anything, right? Did he change the concept of conversation for our world? Better believe it, he did it through not eating. <laughs> How about that for a resume? I mean, Billy Graham, if we really think about it, he never really led, you know, any convention. He was an evangelist. We start to think of people that changed our world and we start to go, wait a second, it's not based upon the fact that they ran this major corporation. It's, it's what you do with your life. So as a leader, someone that possesses the nature of Jesus, listen, go to work, but change the world. Don't just crunch numbers. While you're crunching the numbers, reach out to your neighbors. Whatever you do, Scripture tells us, in word or deed, do it so your resume is great. Is that what the scripture says? What does it say? Do it with all your heart. For what purpose? For the glory of God. So that means this. You don't have to quit your job. It just means maybe tomorrow you need to go to work for the first time. Maybe you need to show up the leader that God's called you to be. Because I believe that God means this for every leader. John Wesley proved it through the great revival that happened. Give deeply, save richly, and earn as much as you can. 
<laughs> that was the principle of John Wesley's revival, by the way. Those three statements. He told his people to give deeply, to save richly, and to earn as much as you can. He told them, go to work, give it away, and save as much as you can. John Wesley lived his life on 30 pounds a year. 30 pounds a year. At one point, he was making in his day about 1,400 pounds a month. And he lived on 30 pounds a year. Because he believed that if he was available, God would change the story. John Wesley was at the height of making money as a young man before his ministry began. And in walked a young woman. He, at this point, he was an extravagant spender. He earned and he spent. And just He lived paycheck to paycheck. But he had a lot. And he had this flat and he had a cleaning lady come in. And it was a cold day and she had this thin sweater on. And he said, young lady, why don't you have a thicker sweater? It's cold outside. And she said, this is all I've got. And he reached in his pocket to give her some money and had nothing. And he said that day in his journal, I will never be here again. I always want to be available to those in need. And that's why he lived on 30 pounds a year. He gave away millions and millions of dollars in his lifetime. What are we doing? God has called us a new way. We're supposed to be foreign and different. And when we find ourselves uniquely in this place where we can't do anything that gives God glory outside of waking up, we can do better. We can do better. Let's just admit it together. We can do better. Because we realize there's a frailty to human life. And like we've said a hundred times, there are no U-Hauls at funerals. Even the, the people that felt like they were, these great pharaohs in Egypt, who buried themselves with their treasures, all their treasures have been found now, haven't they? They've all been pulled out. Their bodies still wrapped in mummified state. And their treasures are still there. So even though they wanted to take it with them, they couldn't. We sing because of something great that happens because of God. Verse 15 says, what can I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I walk along slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Lord, because of these promises, people live. And in all of them is the life of my spirit as well. You restored me to health now and let me live. Indeed, it was for my own welfare that has such great bitterness, but your love has delivered me from the pit of destruction. For you have thrown away all my sins behind your back. In this moment, a, a leader sings because their sins are forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven because of God, who not only takes your sin when you ask for forgiveness, but he, he takes it and he throws it behind his back and he's done with it. Amen. Only the enemy reminds you of sin. God forgets it. In fact, he distances it from him. He holds no records of wrongs. That's why Corinthians says, love is patient and kind. It keeps no records of wrongs. Listen, as much as we'd like to say that's a wedding story, that's God's attributes. Because God is love. He keeps no record of your wrongs, which I'm thankful for. Because, man, I've got a list. How about you? Enemy reminds me of my list. He reminds me all the time of my list. And I know for, if he reminds me of it, he's got to remind you of it as well. That's not God. God takes our sins and he throws them away because he loves us. 
Now, does God let us not face our sins problems? You better believe it. You steal something from a bank, believe it, buddy. You're going to go to jail. Does that mean that God can't forgive you? No. It just means you're an idiot. Um, and he's got to let you face your consequences. Don't do that. Let me just give you a few not to do. Don't rob a bank. Let's just start there. But listen, God lets us face our consequences. You know why? He loves us. Because if God faced our consequences, you would be dead. For the wages of sin is death. That's what Scripture says. You remember the story of the woman caught in adultery in Scripture? The, the leaders bring her out and say, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. And it says that Jesus stoops down and begins to write something in the sand. And, and we can speculate all day. Listen, Scripture doesn't tell us what it is. But we do know this. That eventually, Jesus says, let he who has no sin do what? Cast the first stone. And they all one by one drop their stones, right? And they walk away. And then Jesus asks the question, woman, where are your accusers? And what he's really saying is, who's here to see you die? And she says, there are none, which is a lie, by the way. Because who could have thrown the stone? Jesus. He was it, right? Who has no sin, let him cast the first stone? It's Jesus. But then the next statement he says is, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Amen. You see, Jesus knows the consequences of our sin are rich. But he also knows the forgiveness that he brings is much, much more valuable. He loves us. He just doesn't want you to stay in your sin. You see, although the wages of sin is death, Jesus died on the cross to pay the price of your sin. So that you would not go back to it time and time again, but so you would stop it. So hear me. If you're robbing banks today, stop it. Stop it. If you're living in sin today, stop it. If something's causing your family to break apart, stop it. If something's ruining your relationship at work, stop it. If something's ruining your relationship with the Lord, stop it. It's not worth it. One day at the end of your dash, you'll sit somewhere and say to yourself, I wish I would have blank. And that blank is that dash. What are you doing with your dash? Hezekiah at this point has talked to Isaiah. Isaiah has talked to God. And God says, Isaiah will live another 15 years. And in the end of this, Isaiah says something that I think we need to take home with us today. Verse 18, he says, For Shalol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living only the living can thank you as I do today. A father will make your faithfulness known to children. The Lord will save me and will play stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. We sing because being thankful isn't optional. That's what happens. We're going to get into Easter season pretty soon, but I'm reminded of what happens during the triumphal entry. The people are crying out to him, Hosanna, and then... They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then they call him something. They call him the king. And the leaders and the rulers start to come up and they say, 
You've got to silence these people. And then Jesus gives the line of all lines. He says this, I cannot, because if even they close their mouths, the rocks will cry out. We're pretty close in our generation to the rocks having to play their part, aren't we? You know, we live in a beautiful area where the canyon sweeps all the way through it. I start to think about the majesty of the moments when I'm down in that canyon as you hear the wind blow through it. Have you been there? Just in the silent moments where you can hear the wind beating across the face of the rock and through the trees and the brush. Where you can hear the animals stirring, uh, not a snake. Snakes don't you know, stir, they lurch. Um, they're the devil. Anyways, um, but when you're in those quiet moments as you hear the wind blowing, it's a marvel, isn't it? To hear the rocks play their part. And I don't know about you, but every time I'm there and I'm in that moment, I'm thankful. And I tell the Lord, thank you for this. Because I want to play my part. When we enter a worship service together, we come from different backgrounds. We come from different states, different ideological backgrounds. We voted differently. We, uh, we talk differently. We go to different places of work. We're different ethnically and in backgrounds of denominations. When we enter this room, we have a chance every Sunday to do something remarkable. And that's this, in the midst of all the diversity that's in this room today, we have a shot. We have a shot to make one voice heard. Because when we all sing together, we all point to one Jesus. And I, I know the, the reality is this. There's probably a lot of songs you didn't know today, huh? There's one I know most of you probably did know, Right? Like when we started to sing, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. When you heard that, what did you think about? I did too. I thought about Jesus. You see, that's what he does. Jesus captivates a room. And so when we show up and collectively we start to point towards him, you know who shows up? <laughs> That's good. Jesus shows up. That's the beauty of what happens in a room. His presence fills the space, and then you can't help but be a part of what's going on. So today, if you entered the room and you decided, I'm just not going to, you missed it. There's some of you in this room that showed up and you said, I'm bringing my best, and you didn't. You got all of it. Because the reality is this. Worship doesn't have to come with musical instruments. Worship doesn't have to come with coordinated musical songs on a screen. Worship can just happen by all of us walking in the room and pointing towards Jesus. So what got in your way today? Is it because somewhere along the line this week, sin entered the room instead of Jesus? Is it because you've missed the moments of being a leader where you should have taken your stand?
Or maybe it's because you showed up today and you didn't expect God to do anything. It's not my Jesus. You see, my Jesus, when he enters the room, he changes it. You see, my Jesus enters the room because he paid the price for my sins and yours. And he's big enough to enter any room. You see, my Jesus is powerful. My Jesus is mighty. My Jesus is holy. And my Jesus today is worthy of your time. So I'm going to give you a chance. Today for invitation, I want you to worship. As your pastor, I'm pleading with you to. I'm not going to say this is how I want you to stand or bow or kneel. I'm just going to ask that you worship this morning. We're still going to have our time of invitation. If you'd like to talk to one of the pastors, we'll be here. Our, our praise team is about to come. You guys come on. Our worshipers up on the stage, y'all, y'all come on start heading this way. What I'm going to ask you to do is this. In this next song, even if you don't know it, maybe you won't even know it, and that's okay. Would you just for the moment, not be talking about what's going to happen after church? Or just for the moment, would you focus your attention on just praying before God and pointing towards Jesus? Maybe for the next few moments, if you do know the song, it's, it's not so that you would stand and look at the lyrics, but close your eyes and sing it as though you have an audience before a holy God. Because whether you know it or not, that's exactly what you have. This morning, you're given an opportunity in these next few minutes to stand before a holy God and to cry out to Him. There are so many reasons to thank you this morning. It's mind-blowing that I take in breath. It is mind-numbing that you would let me be a part of what you're calling us to do. But God, because you give me influence, I want to go to work tomorrow differently than ever before. And so I want to spend these moments drastically in love with you. I want to be moved by you, God. I'm praying that right now where you are, you would start that prayer. God, move in my life today. No matter what else has happened, move in me. Let's stand together and let's sing before a holy God as we pray. Father, make us worshipers today. Lead us, God, to be singers Lord, as you have called us now, send us, God, to be in love with you, to change the room because of who you are. Lord God, we just declare to you today, you are worthy, God. You are a holy God. And Father, we want to be changed by you today, Father. So lead us in this time of worship. Without you, it's pointless, but because you are in the room, it is meaningful today that we spend the next few minutes worshiping a holy God. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and let's worship together. Amen.
This morning, I, I want to give you one more shot to just pray right where you are as how it continues to play. Do me a favor. Close your eyes where you are. There's nothing, in fact, spiritual about that. It's just so you're not distracted. Would you just pray right where you are? God, lead me to be the leader you called me to be this week. Amen. Speak over me. Speak through me. Let me change the room because of you this week. Pray that right where you are in this quietness of this moment. Just begin to pray that prayer. Father, what entered this room may have seemed ordinary to the enemy, but it is anything but that leading out of this room. Because you make things extraordinary. So, Father, as we hear from you about opportunities coming up in our church here in the next few minutes, make the leader's ears come attuned to what you're doing. Lead us, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake, God. Amen.